All right, good evening, everyone. Welcome to the Carolina Weather Group. This is the Wednesday, September 28th edition, 2016, our last Wednesday of the month. Uh, I was just telling someone earlier today how September has just flown by, and uh, here we are at the uh, end of the month, and I have an exciting program on tonight. We have Nolan Duskin, who is the founder and national director of Kokoros. Uh, Nolan is joining us tonight from Colorado State University, so we're happy to have Nolan, uh, Nolan on with us tonight uh, to talk about the Kokoros uh, network and how we can get involved with that. So uh, we will jump into that conversation here in just a little bit, but before we do that, uh, we always like to give you a, a quick discussion of what's taking place in the weather world, especially here in the Carolinas and Virginia. I will say that David Reese is not with us right now. He may join us later. Uh, he has some severe weather in his area, which a lot of us have had severe weather uh, over the past few days here in the Carolinas and up into Virginia. We're going to talk about that here in just a little bit. Uh, but before we do that, uh, let's give you a few housekeeping rules. This is a live broadcast, so if you have any questions or comments or anything like that, you can reach out to us on our Twitter account, um, at Carolina WX Group. Uh, we uh, check Twitter throughout the uh, show. And uh, also, uh, if you're not on Twitter and you want to do it the uh, Facebook way, you can find us on Facebook, Carolina Weather Group, and submit your questions that way. And then if you are um, listening on the rebroadcast, We'll let uh, uh, Nolan give out the uh, Kokoros Twitter handle and maybe how we can get in contact with them towards the end of the show. So I think we've got all that wrapped up. It has been a busy few days here in the Carolinas, but uh, let's uh, go down to, let's see, let's go down to James. Uh, James is in the Charlotte area. Uh, I know Charlotte area is still dealing with some of those storms. So James, how's things going down there? Uh, and how has the weather been the past few days? So, uh, yeah, a little stormy tonight, as uh, lots of parts of the uh, the Carolinas are tonight. We'll pop up our uh, our new radar from our site, and you can see we have several severe thunderstorm warnings right now out across uh, different parts of the Carolinas, as we kind of have um, for, the, for the past few hours. As a matter of fact, you can see a severe thunderstorm warning right now actually up towards uh, David Reese. Uh, my weather highlight of the week, I think, would be this tweet that I think I sent really early Monday morning, and I've learned the lesson here. Do not tweet first thing early in the morning when the weather radio wakes you up. Otherwise, you may accidentally activate a flask flood warning. <laughs> so, <laughs> that's what I get for tweeting in my sleep. But it was a great start to Monday morning. I will leave it at that. A little early morning Grand Marnier for you? It's never too early, right? Especially <laughs> on a Monday. I'll tell you, we uh, we have a, a, a private chat uh, on Facebook that, that we communicate all throughout the week. And uh, we had a little fun at uh, James's expense Monday morning over that. So, uh, thankfully, uh, James, did you see any uh, major flooding down there Monday morning? I know uh, some roads, uh, area roads, and stuff were closed, especially in the western part of the county. You know, they had they had some concerns for some creeks, especially in the Uptown Charlotte area, kind of right where the bulk of that flooding was. Um, I don't think it was any major impact on the commute, at least not with the interstates and such. Uh, but then there was the concern again Monday evening as more rain came on through, and we uh, were then under again during the PM rush a flash flood warning. I got it correct the second time around. Yeah, and um, we've we've seen some isolated flooding issues throughout the area this week. I know here in the western part of the state, it's been kind of hit or miss with uh, thunderstorms. Yesterday we had a, a storm here where I live, picked up an inch and a half in a little less than 30 minutes, and then today we've not had much of anything. Uh, some severe storms uh, just to our north and to our east 
uh, here in the foothills. We did have a few hill reports, but upwards been a little bit calmer is up in the uh, mountains of East Tennessee, and that's uh, where Mr. Ricky Matthews is tonight. Ricky, how's things going on up there in your area? You're right. It really has been a, a calm, <clears throat> excuse me, a seven-day period. We had our first rainfall on Monday after about seven days of seeing some rain. Got picked up a little over half an inch at the airport. So some welcome rain after a little bit of uh, a dry time. We're just watching that upper-level low spin down across the areas of Ohio, down into Kentucky, watching for maybe some small hail tomorrow underneath that low, and uh, watching that flooding threat, too. Not really impacting us much in uh, Tennessee, but for our friends back in Virginia, especially David Reese's area, uh, and even further north into D.C., the potential for some significant flooding up there. Yeah, I was looking maybe four, five, six inches of rain possible up there. Um, they've had some severe weather as well. Uh, one of our... Uh, followers and watchers uh dean davidson was uh gonna try to hop on uh he was watching some of that severe weather there in uh virginia today where a tornado warning was issued for uh the city of lynchburg uh virginia then uh just north of Apotomax, uh which was hit earlier this year by a uh, pretty significant tornado but as last reported i was looking through the chat here i don't think any uh, damage had been uh recorded up there in that area just some uh hell damage and maybe some damage and wind. So uh, no signs of a tornado, but uh, that was an impressive signature on radar uh, up there in the Virginia area, but also a quiet area. Uh, I think you had beautiful sunny skies today because Shay sent us several pictures of what the sky conditions look like in Charleston today. So Shay, how's things going in the low country? Now we're doing pretty good. No severe weather here along the coastline. We we're kind of warm and muggy the last couple of days. We had our uh, nice little sea breeze working in. Uh, this afternoon so we had some some decent weather um, and we're gonna probably hit upper 80s again tomorrow we were at upper 80s today uh, maybe get to mid 80s tomorrow and then we get a little bit of a cool shot so we actually get some of that cool air that upper low that that um, Ricky was talking about was is now blocking that cooler air that could have been in our area but uh, we'll take what we can get if we can get our, our lows down into the 50s we'll be completely happy with that but otherwise uh, pretty sunny along the coastline with a little bit of buildup inland. And uh, the cold fronts just continue to come here in the southeast and die. So we're kind of uh, uh, just watching these cold fronts stall inland just along the Piedmont and the Appalachian areas. And I think we have another cold front that's going to ingest the one that's sitting there now and then not move very much. Welcome so, to Charleston, South Carolina, where cold fronts go to die. That's, that's exactly right. <laughs> and Shay, uh I guess uh, we have to, to mention the developments in, in the tropics today. I know uh, you're starting to gear up with uh, some activity going on uh, in the Atlantic and Caribbean. So uh, you want to give us the 411 on Matthew and just uh, what may be uh, going on with Matthew over the next few days? Sure. Yeah, I'll go ahead and uh, do share screen here. We'll take a quick look. I'll, I'll do a quick rundown with it. And um, let me know when you can see. You're up. Up. Good deal. Okay, so here is uh, Tropical Storm Matthew now. The winds were just upgraded to 65 miles per hour by the National Hurricane Center at the 8 p.m. update. The center is just uh, just west of Martinique uh, in St. Lucia. It's crossing into the Caribbean Sea now, or this system is expected to slow down a little bit and then maybe get a little a north turn to it. So that's what a lot of the models are generating right now is a northern, northern turn up towards Jamaica and into Cuba but the system is expected to continue strengthening at 65 miles an hour. We could be seeing a hurricane uh, by tomorrow. So the, the system went from 
basically a tropical wave right to a 60 mile per hour tropical storm at the 11 a.m. update this morning. Uh, the National Hurricane Center has winds at 65, once again, pressure down to 1,004 millibars. Movement is west at 15 miles per hour, which is actually slower. It was moving west at 20 to 21 miles per hour earlier. So we are seeing that slowdown. Look at Datascope uh, from our Weatherflow Datascope viewer. We can see Martinique had some higher gusts earlier, up near 60 miles an hour around 6 o'clock p.m. There was a hint I heard of a gust up to 89 miles an hour on that island from uh, obviously another sensor that we don't have in our network. But um, you know we're, we're starting to see some, some stronger winds being generated by this system as it continues into warmer waters of the Caribbean Sea. There's also the heat potential in the Caribbean Sea means that the water Sur sea surface temperatures are warmer, deeper into the water too. So typically where a storm might stir the top off and, and upwell some of the cool water below, that may not be happening with this system and it's gonna have a lot of fuel to work with in order to generate more energy. This is the European model for guidance. And remember now, as we get a couple of days out with the turn of this system, uh, things get a little bit uncertain. So until it makes this turn, as you can see just down south of Cuba, the system right here, it's going to start this northerly track, and that's where we're going to start to find a little bit more confidence in forecasting uh, just how fast and how far north it's going to go. The European wants to slow this system down, and the GFS wants to speed it up. So the Euro keeps it a little slow, slowed down a little bit more and keeps it out to sea, whereas if you look at the GFS, let's put this in motion. You can see the storm right now initialized just west of the, the Windward Islands. And then we go across in time and we see this northerly turn come up across Jamaica or just east of Jamaica across the eastern half of Cuba and then a little bit more west. So a lot of this is going to be riding on this ridge to the north, this weak ridge out here in the Atlantic and then a, an upper low with a trough coming across the United States. It's going to be a timing issue here. So the Euro slows the storm down, which may allow this ridge to move out to the east and keep this system further offshore. But if the ridge stays in place and becomes a blocking pattern, then this system could be hooking into the coastline or maybe even just jogging west before riding around it. So we, you know, it's a little far out, very far out actually to try to determine what's going to happen from this point on. But if you are in uh, the Bahamas or even in the Cuban area of Jamaica, you really need to be monitoring this system because this could be a hurricane, a category one or maybe even a category two hurricane by the time it makes it through those islands. I think. Some of the islands have mountainous terrain, which may um, take away from the storm a little bit or weaken it somewhat. Uh, I call that Cuban diplomacy, but um, we'll see what happens when it goes north of there. But until then, we're just gonna watch and see what happens. It's an open, open water right now. It's got plenty of time, low upper shear. Um, it has warm waters to fuel it, and it has every reason to become a hurricane very soon. Back to Shake. you, Scotty. Shay, two questions. Actually, I'm going to jump in. Uh, it's James. If we were to look at that again, what makes the storm turn right like that? Almost 90 degrees right. And if so, will it be strong enough to survive and keep or maintain much of its strength as it goes over Cuba? Right. So um, let me go to the water vapor imagery real quick, and I'll pull this up, and I'll give you an idea of what's going on here. So if we view the loop on this, that upper low has a lot to do with it, believe it or not. The one that's dipping down from the Great Lakes down towards the Tennessee Valley. And so you have a lot of air that's diving down into the Gulf and there's an upper trough that's developed down here uh, that goes down and around through Cuba and into Florida. And then you have this weak ridge, this high pressure out here in the Atlantic that's steering the system this way. It's going to erode on this side. It's gonna allow a little bit of a track for the system along between this upper trough and this ridge 
and the system is going to lift. So that's what's going to cause that turn down below Q. But this trough actually goes a little bit further down below where this map actually shows and dips down into the Western Caribbean Sea. So that's kind of the, the, the track guidance. And that's that's a, pretty much agreed just by ev almost every single model. Uh, the big question is how far west it's going to go before it turns. If it goes further west, maybe even looking at a threat to southern Florida, uh, the Keys in southern Florida, before it hooks up and out into the ocean, if it does do that. Uh, whereas if it's, the sooner it turns, the more easterly the tracks can go east of Jamaica and Cuba, uh, in between Cuba and maybe even Dominican Republic and hook out to sea faster. But there again, there's a lot of variables in there to decide which way this storm is going to go. If it's going to go straight north, uh, hook west, or even hook off to the northeast, we're just not sure yet. So uh, really, it's all about a waiting game to see when this when it turns to the north below Cuba. Shay, I, I pulled this image. This comes from Ryan Maui on uh, Twitter and Weatherbell. This was the Euro EPS like uh, ensemble minimums, check out the uncertainty spread in this model and uh, all the different solutions that is shooting out potentially for this system as we go later into the, this, the day 10 output. So Saturday, uh, October 8th, I believe, uh, would be when it is. But pretty remarkable. All the wow, so that's the, uh, that's the Euro ensemble. Yeah, that's yeah, the a, lot, ensemble. <laughs> a lot of variables here. I saw the 12Z of this last night where they actually have the, uh, the swathing over it from where, from the origination point to the swathing. And boy, I tell you, it looks like two hands just sort of, it looks like a rooster, uh, you know, the <laughs> gobbler on a rooster, how, how wide the spread is. So yeah, we'll, we'll look for that tonight again at the midnight run. Of course, I won't be up at 2.30 a.m. to see it, but I'll, I'll check it first thing in the morning and we'll see. Yeah, I imagine it'll probably be a little bit tighter than this. Oh yeah, that's all the geeking out from Shay and I. Over to you. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, it looks like uh, we're going to have our hands full and I'm sure we'll be talking about uh, Matthew this time next week um, as we approach the uh, one year anniversary of the South Carolina floods and Joaquin and, and all of uh, that uh, that took place last October. So uh, with that, let's bring in our guest, Mr. Nolan Duskin. He is the founder and national director of Kokoros, uh, housed there at Colorado State University. And uh Nolan, first of all, thank you for coming on the show. And uh, how uh, how are you doing today? And how's uh, things over there in the uh, in the Rockies? You were seeing some sunlight getting in on my screen there for a, for a while, but sun is still up. But it's about to set behind the foothills. We have not had a cloud in the sky for about four days right now. So upper seventies, low eighties today. That could change by. By this time of year, we occasionally will have snow, but nothing is in in sight this year. Ah, oh, man. So uh, it's been dry out there as well. So, uh, Nolan, we appreciate you coming on tonight and, and taking a little bit of time out of your schedule to talk to us about Kokoros. And since you're the founder and national director, I, I think um, it's perfect to have you on tonight because you know the ins and outs of Kokoros. So uh, my first question is, is what is Kokoros? And uh, what has uh, put you guys into the weather community? Oh boy, Kokoraz, where in the world did that come from? That was a, a, a name, an acronym given to our project when we were a local rainfall network here and just in Fort Collins, Colorado in 1998. And the reason we came to, to exist was a really nasty local flash flood the previous year, 1997, right here in 
again in Fort Collins. It was a, a storm of only a few square miles in total dimension, but in its center put down about 14 inches of rain and a catastrophic flood, couple hundred million dollars of damage to our university and unfortunately some fatalities, very little data at that time. The Weather Service uh, radar was fresh and new and we all had this confidence that it would show clearly how much rain was falling and it turns out it, it underestimated the rainfall by, well, it was showing about three inches from that storm while we were actually getting 14. Earlier in that day, just a few miles away from us in a different direction, about 10 inches of rain fell from a low-topped, warm, uh, tropical uh, cloud physics cell here northwest of Fort Collins, and the radar showed less than a half an inch. So right at that point in time, we knew we had some some issues, but Kokoraz stood for, in its origin, the Colorado Collaborative rain and hail study. We were planning to study rainfall just in our Fort Collins area from intense summer storms to try to get a better handle on local variation. Uh, but lo and behold, uh, people got interested and we had a, a small local rebellion and people said, we want snow, we want snow. And so we added snow and, and then we expanded beyond Colorado starting in 2003 and four, and we had to drop the name Colorado and replace it with community. So the same acronym has held, but the meaning has changed. It's now the Community Collaborative Rain, Hail, and Snow Network. Coco Raz, yay! <laughs> that, that's very creative and clever, and that great that you guys were able to hold on to the name. <laughs> Uh, now that you've expanded well beyond Colorado, uh, do you have a rough estimate on how many daily reports you guys receive or how many active users you have? Well, I can see, I'm looking over at my other screen. So far today, sort of a slow day because quite a bit of the country outside of the East Coast in the Chicago area has been dry and people are a little slow in getting their zero reports in, but we've had about 8,700 reports come in so far today in a wet day by this time we'd have maybe 10,000 or so uh, and in the background is another 10,000 or so who have their gauges at the ready and who report sometimes for example when the rains come back to California we'll go from having a couple hundred reports a day who have stuck with it for months and months of dry weather and fire up to five or 600 a day come the storms of winter that they're all hoping for. So, that, so it's about 20,000 active observers and about another 20,000 that have signed up at some point, reported at some point and now retired. You guys are doing a social network for weather folks long before there were social networks. <laughs> I guess we were ahead of them. <laughs> what, do you, what do you do with that data? Well, I'm, I'm looking at a map right now, and I don't know if I can show it to you, but um, at the Kokoraz website, C-O-C-O-R-A-H-S dot O-R-G, the first thing you can click on is the map of the United States, and every day, 
all those reports within a minute or two of being submitted by the volunteers show up on a map. By the way, we also have Canada and the Bahamas show up on that map. And we can immediately map and track precipitation. Uh, and what you find is what you sort of know, but when you have, I'm clicking now into one of our most dense counties of densely volunteered counties in North Carolina, which is Wake County, which today precipitation this morning varied from, and eh, nothing big hit them yesterday. So between zero and a tenth of an inch or so. But we have upwards of 30 to 50 reports a day just from one county. And when you get that much data, that's when you see the local variations. And it's those local variations that are behind the flooding that often is spotty. Now, you and I and everyone else in our field are very uh, committed. Oh, there it appears. I figured I put it up on the screen uh, as you were describing it so that people could see exactly what it was uh, that yeah. you were looking at. And you can click right on North Carolina if you want to. Yeah, and actually, it actually looks like maybe South Carolina's got quite oh, a Oh, yeah, bit there's rain. a little bit more. And we can see, what's that amount there? Somebody this had... looks like 6.61 in the northern edge of Edgefield, South Carolina. And that would have, and look at the south edge of that county, zero. So there would be a prime example of the range of variability that we experience on the county scale, sub-county scale. Historically, I, I'm in this, also the state climatologist for Colorado, and I've been drawing precipitation maps for many decades, I'll have to admit. And we used to be happy if we had one or two volunteers in a county. Now our idea of a good county is is one there like Buncombe County, Asheville area, Wake County there in the Raleigh uh, area. And, uh, or oh, there we go. There you see it. Uh, and you, immediately you find that you got more precipitation variability than you think. Now we all love radar. How one of the big users of our data ends up being people who do radar estimates of precipitation because they go from what the radar shows but need ground truth to confirm what's actually hit the ground. Here in Colorado where we have a lot of hail contamination, ah, there's a good view of a radar. Looks like you'll I, have some more data coming in from Wake later on this evening. <laughs> I, I think there'll be more activity before this evening is over for sure. <laughs> Uh, Sorry, I cut you off. You're talking about Colorado, just as I put our Carolina radar up. Oh yeah, but you have a good, better, a good local example. Uh, now I totally forgot what I was saying. That's perfect. <laughs> uh, well, uh, Nolan, tell us uh, who can participate in this program. I mean, is this uh, just meteorologists, or is this uh, open to the general public, or or how about how does someone go about that? It is crazy open. It's anybody who is willing to set up a rain gauge. And please know, I think I got one here. Yeah, yep, here it is. We all use the same type of gauge, the four-inch diameter manual gauge. I know there's so much interest in automated gauges these days, and I understand that, and I, I acknowledge and appreciate it. But the best total measurement 
for climatological documentation ends up still being a manual gauge read by a human who cares. And uh, anyone who is willing to acquire one of these gauges, some of our states come up with uh, donations to make gauges available, but for most places, you have to get your own gauge. We all use the same. It's equivalent and, and interchangeable with the National Weather Service's official standard rain gauge, and as, re as a result, our data are also used and interchanged with uh, Weather Service data sources. Some of you may be familiar with the Weather Service uh, Now Data Local Climate Product, and if you click on the local climate and you get yourself into Now Data, you can actually find all COCORA's reports will show up on Weather Service local climate web, web uh, interfaces as well. So by using the same gauge, we've all been able to play, play on the same game with the Weather Service. Uh, who can join? Anybody who will get a gauge. And no, no, this, uh, this kind of slides into what we're talking about. We, uh, one of our, uh, our followers is watching tonight, and she is a school teacher, Ms. Lynn Moore. Uh, she said, how can I get my classroom or even my school involved with your system? And what are some good ways to encourage um, our students and their families uh, to get excited about this project? Well, just look at the gauge and look at the map and see how it varies from place to place. And for what I like about this from an educational point of view, yeah, you can have a, a tipping bucket rain gauge up on the roof of the school and it'll give data, but it doesn't come alive as in terms of what that really means. When you see the water in the gauge and then see what impact it's had, how, many, how big the puddles are, how big the rivers are flowing, et cetera, it's an immediate connection of rainfall to impact, which is a, a big learning activity. Anybody, again, who goes to the Kokoraz site, kokoraz.org, there's a join Kokoraz button. You click that button, you can join. We have something like 800 participating schools, and we just two weeks ago, or last, no, just last week, ended up our annual fall rain gauge week for schools across the country. And we have competitions in the fall and in the spring to get as many schools collecting data the same week so they can all be uh, comparing notes across the country. So yes, schools are welcome, kids are welcome. The, da the data are those sort of, sort of like baseball statistics. They're easy to get your hands around and relatively easy to create your own graphs plots, et cetera, compare data from one point to another. And then what we love is when you get a bunch like in one county or one community here in Fort Collins where Kokora started on a really stormy day, we'll have as many as 80 reports just from Fort Collins alone. And even on dry days, we have about 40. And that we have, and some of those are schools and you can see even on a normal day, there'll be a factor of two variation of rainfall from one part of town to another. And on many of the more variable days, it'll be a factor of 10 from one part of town to another, let alone county, state, country. Uh, one of the things that's really fun to do, which our maps are, are geared for, is pointing out which part of the country is getting the most rain. And I, I think 
Uh, was it that South Carolina station? Was that the most in the country today? I can quickly tell you. And the answer is, yep, you happen to go right to the wettest gauge in the whole country when you showed that. So good job. All right. I guess I'm drawn to bright colors. I think that's what it was. <laughs> Perfect. That's um, classic, classic Piedmont troughing there. That's uh, heavy duty storms today. Uh, for schools or anybody else who wants to get involved, I'm wondering if you could just kind of walk us through the basics of placing a gauge and why you do that. I've actually found some training material on your website, so we'll, I think we'll be able to show some visuals between what you have in your hand there and, and kind of what's prepared in one of your training guides to kind of show people a little bit about what you're talking about too. Super. The, the most important thing is getting the gauge out of the box and putting it outside. Uh, and obviously that looks like a pretty good location. There's no obstructions in any direction. That ends up being unusual because most of us live in areas where there are trees, houses, buildings. What you're trying to do, yeah, get it out of the gauge, get it out of the box, into the outdoors. That's your, that's your first goal. Keep it away from the, the downspout. I like, the, that, I like that picture right there. That's a good one. <laughs> <laughs> that would be how not to measure rain. Yes. <laughs> For sure. But you try to find as good of an opening as you can, can. Keep it out from under trees, not too close to the house, not under uh, awnings. Sort of common sense, but a lot of us do have obstacles. So you get it out. Uh, I try to get it as far away from each of the obstacles that I have to contend with, especially giving clear in the direction that the wind most often blows while precipitation is falling. Oops, there's a, there's a, oh, this, this is a real photo of a real bear really checking the gauge. Yes, look at that. I was actually, I was drawn to the slope. If does somebody actually have that slope in their backyard, that's, no, that's we, magnificent. We have some people who live right at the edge of mountains and canyons who do have to deal with conditions near like this it's a little tough yeah absolutely absolutely uh i wanted to also touch upon and i'll pull these pictures off the screen while, while i ask this question and you touched on it a little before in that there is kind of a cooperation with the national weather service but if i'm a user and i contribute a report to you does that automatically go to the national weather service or should i turn and submit that report separately if you're a regular reporter of daily precipitation just sending it to Kokoraz will pretty much guarantee that it's also in the hands of the Weather Service and the River Forecast Centers. But, but some of our observers are both a part of the National Weather Service Cooperative Network and Kokoraz, and they want to make sure, so they do both. Uh, but it's actually not necessary to do both because it does get there. The severe weather reports that we also have the ability to report finds its way right to the Weather Service as well uh, and can streamline the process in case they're a little too busy taking storm reports. But we also strongly encourage all of our, our volunteers to be trained Weather Service Skywarn spotters. I had a question re regarding the reports. When I was a reporter, and unfortunately I live in an apartment complex now, so it's a little harder to put a rain gauge outside my apartment. Um, but I remember you guys insisting that people report zero amounts too. Why is reporting nothing or reporting zero just as important as reporting when rain actually falls? 
I think that example that you saw in which county was it in, in South Carolina with the 6.61, if that was the only report in the county, then typical uh, objective analysis methods for mapping values would smear that value out over the whole county. There you go. But by the fact that these observers in the southern part of the county and in adjacent Aiken County submitted their reports, we know that's zero. Now, what we really wish we had is about five more count uh, observers between the southern part and the northern part of the county. And But you need, in order to truly define the patterns and to have as complete of weather records for uh, climatological analysis purposes, and for drought depictions, et cetera, those zeros end up being really important. Not very fun or motivating, but nevertheless important. Oh, we would have we had had plenty of those zeros around here in the uh, the Western Carolinas the past couple of weeks. But um, also, as we're, while we're talking about measuring, uh, you guys do snow and hail. So uh, I know snowfall measuring snowfall can be kind of tricky. So uh, you have any uh, pointers, or, or how do you suggest the Kokoros users they report uh, snowfall uh, accumulations as well as hail uh, accumulations, or or the size of hail? Right. Well, let's st start with hail since it's still the hail season, and that is we just want people that well here in Colorado we encourage people to use hail pads, which are styrofoam pads wrapped in aluminum foil where you can actually get, see the number, size, and density of the stones just by looking at the dents in the foil on the foam. Uh, but for most of us, it's eyeing it up with a ruler. Uh, we want to know not only the maximum diameter, but also the average diameter, the smallest, largest, and the approximate number of stones per square foot to really add scientific value to a hail report. Uh, so we encourage people to be there, but if you're not there and you just know you had hail, you report what you can when you, with what you know. Uh, but for snow, now that's a, a wonderful beast. Uh, <laughs> and it's hard to perfect. Why is it hard to perfect? Because snow melts, snow settles, snow moves around with the wind. And and if somebody who measures at 5 a.m. may find a different amount of snow sitting on the ground than his next door neighbor who doesn't wake up until 8 and get out with the ruler till 9. Uh, so standardizing the time of observation, so we're all measuring at about the same time. We prefer the first thing in the morning, 7 a.m. plus or minus an hour or two as our preferred time. We want people to measure on a flat, ideally white surface. So we all are sticking the ruler down against a, a uniform surface instead of sticking it down on, on grass where the grass may be, uh, may hold, actually suspend the snow in the air. You may have an inch of snow, but the three inches of, of grass below it and your ruler will say four inches. So measuring on a standard surface, trying to find a location that is relatively wind-free and, and relatively drift-resistant. And if you go to the Dakotas, we have a lot of people who just quit in the winter because there is no such thing as wind-resistant areas where there's no drifting. 
But what you then do is you have to do a little, uh, little eyeball averaging, looking for what's the, where is it the deepest, the least, where is it the most clear, take a average of maybe seven or nine measurements, find the average or the median of those and, and call it good. So, so snow measurement, it requires love for snow and care in and a little bit of more detailed observation. What lands in the gauge, uh, you know, snow can stick to the rim of the gauge. In the winter, we take the funnel, there it is, take that funnel out and just leave the inner tube and leave the outer tube out. Then it does a little better job of collecting. Uh, but the wind can blow the snow around the gauge. We want to know the depth of it, of accumulation. We also really want to know the water content and what lands in that gauge may not be all that actually fell. So that's where we also encourage people measure what landed in your gauge. It might be close, but also do a core sample, which would be taking a core onto the snow surface uh, and getting a, cutting a biscuit or a cookie and then melting or weighing that to get its water content. So you, you see you have to really sort of love snow to go at this. About 20% of our, oh, nice stuff. About 20% of our observers call it quits for the winter and wait till spring and don't try to fight their way through ice and snow, which makes sense because a lot of our volunteers are uh, not as young as they used to be and being out on the ice can be, problematic. There you're seeing some of the instructions and some photo examples of the tools of the, of the trade and how to do it. Uh, but it's averaging, getting a core if, the, if what's collecting in the, in the gauge may not have been representative and then just doing, doing your best with the information you have, kind of diagnosing the situation and measuring and reporting accordingly. That's very interesting. I, I I learned so much, and I thought I knew how to measure snow, but I have to go back uh, go back the next time it snows and, and uh, get that gauge and, and weigh out the the content. So that's pretty cool. <laughs> I like that. So Nolan, uh, I have a question for you. The the individuals that are making these observations and recording them, how are they getting this information to you? Is there some sort of program that they download, or do they just log into the site and and enter the information, or how does that work? How the data come to us is in three ways. The main use are folks that go online to the Kokoraz website. When they're a registered observer, they get a username and password and a station number, and they can just save that password in their computer, and it'll always log them in to their data entry page, and they just go in, type it in, hit submit, away it goes. Uh, we also have both iPhone and Android apps for data entry that a lot of people prefer. They just run out to the, to the gauge and then on their way to work or who knows where, uh, enter it on off their phone or mobile device. And then we still have a phone system for those who, who uh, prefer to call in or who lose power or other ways of communicating and can, but can still get on a phone. And so either of those three ways, we have 
volunteers standing by who take those rainfall reports and then submit them online for the observers who call. So we have those three options and as a result that the data just stream in. One of the funnest things for me to do, I, I sort of sit back and smile and, and marvel every morning when the map lights up starting on the east coast and then moving from east to west as the day progresses as those reports come streaming in especially on the days after big storms when people are really standing at the ready to get their gauges submitted there's an example of getting the reports in that would be using the the regular web page where you enter the the time of observation most people read at about 7 a.m but that can be flexible, automatically puts the date in, automatically puts a zero in to your amount. So you can just, if that's what you got, all you have to do is bring up the page and hit submit. But there's also a box there called observation notes. And we love it when people add a little value to their report by describing things like, well, when did the storm occur? How long did it last? Instead of just adding a precip amount, tell us more about it and about 15 or 18 percent of our observers will add remarks interestingly folks that use the apps are much less likely to take the time to type in that information i guess i can understand that but i regret that because we love those comments and nolan that's uh, that's fascinating uh, does the national weather service use that information as well in their local storm reports they, many of them do. It's not totally uniform from office to office on how much they use, but in many offices, you click on the local storm report and you'll see the whole list of what's come in and you'll see co-op observer, train spotter, and then some areas you see long lists of Kokoraz observers because parts of the country there, the greatest numbers of reports coming to the weather service. So in so, other words, they, oh, go ahead, Scotty. I'll come yeah. back with mine in a little bit. Yeah, go ahead, Shay. Go ahead. Um, I was just going to ask, you know, since you're partnered, it looks like your sponsors are NOAA, National Weather Service, and, and uh, other weather authorities. Is your information verifiable to, uh, you know, how much percentage do they put in verification of your information that they're getting? I mean, I know that um, from one station to another in different areas, like last year when we had our October flooding, there was a couple of reports that were a little bit questionable there. Uh, but how much confidence is given to the overall reports from each individual person? And, and is it that you go on a, a larger trend when you have a large event? Or do you solely rely on individual reports? Well, there's always, with any system, whether it's automated or manual, there will be some questions and some issues and some inconsistencies in reporting. But we find that we have a very large fraction well over 95% of the reports that are probably as accurate as you will find from any other source. Once you get the really monster storms, and please look, uh, the gauge is a foot tall, and when it has the inner tube in, it displaces some water. Put the funnel in, it'll displace a little bit more. It can only hold a little, little over 11 inches, and we have every year a dozen or so days in the country where for at least a maybe local or a few county areas some areas are getting more than that that requires people going out more than once a day 
to empty and check their gauge, or if the storm occurs at night or uh, they're having flooding, it's probably best that they not go out. So yeah, we do have situations where gauge is over top and the readings we get are approximate. Again, we appreciate the comments that the observers add, but I assure you there's not very many areas that get more than 11 inches of rain in a day. Uh, and then, and again, in those really big storms like the Carolina, uh, North, South Carolina flood last year, you have people dealing with their own issues and problems. They might forget to read their gauge, read it a few hours late, at which time it's not really a daily report, should have been submitted as a multi-day, uh, things like that. But So it does take some diagnosing of the data after the fact to make sure. But most of the stuff we get is rock solid because it's taken by people just like you. And so, uh, Nolan, my, my question to you, and, and Shay brought this up a little bit ago, uh, there's like state networks, like South Carolina has their own Kokoraz and, and North Carolina has theirs. How does that tie into the, the whole Kokoraz organization altogether? Is it divided up into states and it all feeds to you, or how does that work? Well, it's a single national system, but what we have found is running from a single headquarters on a country as big as the U.S., it really helps to have a local face who knows the local people and the local climate. And I, again, as state climatologist for Colorado, I know the state climatologist in every other state. So we're all friends. We get together once or more a year, and we all are better off by having more local data for our states. So we have many state climatologists donate some of their time to help lead the state effort, and then we work with all the National Weather Service offices, uh, and of course some of them cross state lines, but we do encourage state websites, state identity, state pride, as much as it's state competition in terms of recruiting. We have a competition every March to see who can write, who can recruit the most uh, uh, new volunteers. And North Carolina, by the way, has taken home that trophy. There is actually a trophy, believe it or not, called the Kokoraz Cup. And every year, some state takes that home with them. And North Carolina, who seems to have a sense for March Madness anyway, uh, and gets into that March competition has gotten their their fair share of the Kokoraz Cup. Well, we are very competitive when it comes to South Carolina as well, so I'm hoping we can beat that one observation in South Carolina here at some point before the day is over here in North Carolina. All so right. Plenty of That's what I'm rooting for. Well, uh, which uh, I'm just curious, what are maybe the top five states that uh, for Kokoraz and maybe the bottom five where you need to recruit more folks? Oh, well, as you can guess, part of it is population dependent and population density. We need more in rural areas anywhere in the country. We're not doing well at all in Nevada. If you can, <laughs> if you can help me find some volunteers in the desert or in western Utah on the, on the Bonneville Salt Flats, obviously that's one of the shortcomings of Kokoraz. But there's lots of the country where we would really like to have more. We were very sparse, for example, on Long Island, uh, New York, until just the last month when a timely newspaper article uh, 
There you have to. There we go. Look at that. I'm terribly sorry. I grew up there. I I, I missed all of those youthful years where I could have been sending you in reports. <laughs> and just in the last month, we finally dotting Suffolk and Nassau County and the rest of Long Island with with more volunteer reports. Uh, that was a big breakthrough because we knew we had plenty of people there. It's just getting them to sign up. Uh, there are, you know, strongholds are the Carolinas, Maryland, New Jersey's been a great stronghold. Recently, Massachusetts and, and uh, New Hampshire, Vermont have been doing much better. Uh, Pennsylvania, believe it or not, uh, could really use some help. Uh, and uh, not as surprisingly, but Southeast Ohio, the uh, West Virginia, parts of Kentucky, very much could use more more volunteers. There are people there. We just don't always get the word out. Uh, you're not showing Kansas and Nebraska too great today because they haven't had any rain. So it's just those that got around to reporting zeros. But those are two rural agricultural states that have really gone cuckoo for Kokoraz. And when it rains, they report. But then some of the other states around them, not as much. So part of it is is the local recruiting team, the resources available, and just how to get the word out. We let the local volunteer leaders do a lot of that heavy lifting, and we keep the main headquarters running so that we're sharing all the information nationally. Okay, I know Ricky has a question and Shay has one, and we're, we're closing in on 9 o'clock. So uh, one of my last questions to you, uh, Nolan, is uh, for those who are interested in joining Kogaraz, what would you say uh, the overall cost of this is, uh, getting your rain gauge and, and maybe the snow uh, platform to measure snow? Uh, what, uh, what do you uh, suggest or, or maybe the approximate cost to, to get started with uh, Kokoros? Yeah, if you're in the majority of the country where there are no sponsors for the gauges, it's going to cost you about $35 to buy a gauge and have it shipped to you. The other things, the hail... Uh, hail measurements you can figure that out on your own snow you can paint a board white and set that out and you can be or use a piece of white styrofoam you can be off and running so 35 to 40 dollars is an entry cost now a lot of people are paying way more than that for an automated station and they say why can't i use my automated gauge and the and the answer is it's not they're not all consistent and they don't meet national weather service requirements for being used uh, uh, along with National Weather Service official gauges. So about 35 to $40, and you can be in business. Very cool. I, I had a question going back to something I found on your website. You guys have uh, put a little bit of information up about evapotranspiration and what you guys are doing with that. Can you elaborate a little more on it? Oh, yeah. We have the anti-ring gauge, the, <laughs> which is essentially a gauge with a uh, ceramic uh, material on the top and a cloth that is behaves a little bit like a leaf of a plant and and you fill it with water and then measure it as the water level goes down and between the ET the evapotranspiration and the incoming precipitation we can plot water balance and I believe we have a few stations in the Carolinas who have an ET gauge and a side-by-side -side rain gauge and you can go to those water balance graphs. And it's a wonderful thing. When, when you're in the surplus, 
when the rain is exceeding the evapotranspiration, you know your rivers are high and, and, and the soil moisture is, is abundant. And when it's the other way around, you can tell you're heading toward into your next drought. So very, I'm sure glad you asked about that. Those ET gauges are a little more pricey, a little over $200. So we've only got about 200 volunteers who have sprung for that, but still it's pretty neat. Very cool, all right. I think I had um, Ricky kind of kind of took the question I was going to ask too because I thought that was pretty interesting on the site. Uh, but uh, my question is going to be, um, you know, with, with the hand, what you were showing us with the rain gauge, uh, is there anything down the road in technologically speaking that you may add to the Cocoraz network for instrumentation or is this always going to be the norm? I, I know that our company Weatherflow is working right. on new weather stations and we're using kinesthetics and haptic rain sensing and it's, it's patent pending so there's it's not a, a for sure thing yet so um, you know it's going to be experimental for a little while but is that anything that you're looking for down the road uh, to modernize technology? In this day and age especially younger people just assume there's got to be a technological solution so this idea of a plastic rain gauge is like boring uh, but the reality is is measuring precipitation under all conditions of wind, temperature, and, uh, and phase of precipitation, rain, hail, and snow is a tough beast. And so for the foreseeable future, we assume there'll be all sorts of other technologies that serve great purposes, but we're gonna keep doing a baseline manual measurement to sort of be a ground truth comparison for all the other technologies. You can use radar across the whole country to estimate rainfall, but if you don't have some ground truth points along the line, some of those estimates start drifting quite a ways off. So the two in combination, technology plus manual, uh, is my favorite combination. Very well said, yeah. I've seen that many times with the digital radar. Uh, accumulation shows one thing, and then I look at the cocoa rods observation nearby. I'm like, well, I don't know about that. That's about an inch too much, you know. We're, we're, and and so yeah, that's very helpful to have the actual uh, feet on the ground perspective yep. from it. I love the one-two punch. Okay, Nolan. Well, uh, we're closing in on the top of the hour, so I don't want to keep you too long. But again, uh, for those who may be uh, just joining us or maybe didn't catch it the first time. How would you uh, suggest our followers and our watchers, our viewers tonight, uh, to uh, get involved there with Kokoros? What do they have to do? Well, first of all, go visit the website, kokoros.org. That's C-O-C-O-R-A-H-S dot O-R-G. And, and just explore. There's lots of stuff there. There's a YouTube ch uh, channel that we have with dozens of training videos and instructional videos and recorded uh, educational webinars, tons of stuff. So learn the website, see what you can about how, ver how precipitation varies, then click down to your state and county and find out uh, if there are volunteers in your area and whether there are or not, you are still most welcome. If it's something that appeals to you, if you're a teacher who wants your school kids to get involved, do it. How do you do it? You just click on the Join Kokoraz button and when you're ready, when you've, when you've figured out you want to do it, go for it, fill out the information, and within a few seconds to minutes, you'll get an email back that gets you started, and it, go, and it, it goes from there. Then you're on the honor system to go buy your gauge. 
and, and actually get it installed. But we'll give you all the instructions you need to get started. And if they uh, wanted to buy that gauge, where would uh, you suggest uh, directing them to? Well, there's there are a number of, of companies that sell it, but it all comes down. It's all the same gauge being manufactured in the same place up in Minnesota. And so we've got a couple of the companies who give reduced rates to Kokoraz volunteers, and you can and that's in the message that they get when they sign up. Awesome. And I think uh, we'll probably get the Kokoraz link on our website. Uh, I don't, don't mean to throw much on James, but I know that uh, probably an easy fix that we can uh, link our uh, followers on our website to the Kokoraz website. And I'm already working on a post uh, from a highlight of tonight's show explaining to your volunteers and to anyone really who's, who's observing weather how to properly place a weather gauge. So we will look to pass the, that information along. Awesome. Yes, and we hope uh, North Carolina continues to win the uh, Kokoros Cup. <laughs> we're, 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 we're coming for Coco. That's right. We're coming for you, South Carolina. That's, that's, a, different, that's a different tagline, isn't it? Coco <laughs> <Cucu>, Ross. <laughs> uh, well, Nolan, uh, again, thank you for joining us tonight. Uh, do you want to um, maybe give out the uh, Twitter handle or, or um, maybe uh, email it's, address or something? Yeah. How? We can email the, you guys. A, a very simple Twitter handle, if you can figure out the rest of the acronym. It's at CocoRaz, at C-O-C-O-R-A-H-S. And if you want to write to us, it's simply info at CocoRaz.org. All right, Nolan, we appreciate having you on the show tonight. Maybe we can uh, get you back on the show and talk about some uh, climatology uh, uh, throughout the area. Uh, that, that would be cool to have you on. Uh, we appreciate you coming on. And next week, I'm sure we'll mention the Kokoros uh, Network as we talk about the South Carolina flood. We are entering the uh, or approaching the uh, one-year anniversary of the South Carolina flood. Uh, next week, we are going to have Ed Piotrowski on from uh, Myrtle Beach, uh, Rob Fowler on from Charleston, South Carolina, and Jim Gandy will be joining us from Columbia, South Carolina. So we have uh, – I think we almost have all of South Carolina that was affected by the flooding covered there. Uh, we may reach out to someone in Greenville. Um, they didn't see as much flooding, but uh, we might can uh, round out the uh, the whole uh, metro market of South Carolina there. So uh, they'll be joining us next week. And then the week after that, uh, we'll be joined by Dr. Marshall Shepard. Uh, he's going to be talking to us about uh, maybe a flood rating system or some way how to better communicate uh, the flooding risk, as we've seen over the past several months, uh, story after story of, of people uh, not taking flooding seriously. So uh, Marshall uh, is going to join us and talk about how we can better communicate that to, uh, to the public. So uh, we hope that you will join us over the next few weeks. Uh, make sure that you stay tuned to our Facebook and Twitter accounts. We'll give you updates about upcoming shows as well as giving you updates about uh, a tropical storm and what will probably be Hurricane Matthew over the next few days. Uh, we'll be uh, tweeting those out and putting them on Facebook. Uh, you can follow Shay. Uh, he also does a lot uh, for Weatherflow. Shay, do you want to kind of promote your, your stuff there with Weatherflow, how they can uh, get some in-depth analysis of uh, Matthew? Sure, yeah. Uh, I focus primarily on the tropics when, uh, with Wind Alert. So you can go to Wind Alert on Facebook. It's, it's pretty much just Wind Alert. Uh, also, at Weatherflow Chass is, is my tagline here, as you can see at the bottom of the screen, Weatherflow Chass uh, for Twitter. 
Also, Chucktown Windring Port is an area where I focus on for the wind and water sports along the South Carolina coast. And then uh, also in Shea Gibson Weatherflow uh, Facebook page. So there's, there's, I'm kind of all over the place with it, but usually when I do an update or YouTube video, I also have a YouTube channel as well. Then uh, I'll share that out and just sort of spread it across all the different channels. So um, yeah, stay pretty busy with it, but yeah, we're, we'll definitely be watching the tropics. And again, like I said earlier in the show, it's really about that northerly turn over the next two to three days. Beyond that, it's just really uncertain right now where the system's going to go. So uh, we're watching. I will say why uh, while we have been talking about heavy rain events and flooding, uh, Greensboro and Burlington, North Carolina, both under flash flood warnings. Uh, I was looking through uh, chat, uh, NWS chat here. Uh, excuse me. It seems like uh, some cars and stuff have been uh, – uh, underwater now in the uh, Burlington area due to uh, some flooding in that area. I'm trying to pull it up right now. Yeah, submerged vehicles around Burlington, also flooding in uh, downtown Greensboro. So uh, our thoughts are with the folks in the uh, triad tonight uh, who are uh, being affected by uh, the heavy rain. Also, I'll mention uh, Ricky Matthews and myself will be in Charlotte next week covering weather for NASCAR and the Bank of America 500. And Ricky, our track record proves that it will probably see some rain. And so uh, they can follow us on Twitter, and we'll give you updates uh, at the racetrack for next week. We're, we're keeping our fingers crossed, but our uh, to be honest with you, our batting average is not that good. So. <laughs> and that's how we got fired. <laughs> so if you're uh, going to be uh, in Charlotte uh, or around Charlotte for the NASCAR races, make sure you follow us. Uh, we'll give you some weather updates for the track. So thanks, everyone, for uh, watching us tonight. Uh, we will be back on next week uh, talking about the South Carolina flooding or the South Carolina flood event with uh, Ed Piotrowski, Jim Gandy, and Rob Fowler. You all have a uh, great week. Enjoy the cooler weather that's coming in, and uh, we'll see you next week.